This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the Senior Editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Immigrants are once again streaming across the southern border into the United States with the lifting of restrictions on illegal immigrant entry into the country the Biden administration has introduced something close to an open borders policy that is proving uh, to everyone that uh, the United States remains a very attractive country and especially attractive to impoverished immigrants from Central and South America. How do we make sense of this migration? Well, Peter Scarry, professor of political science at Boston College, provides one way of thinking about the topic in his recent very provocative essay why Black Lives Matter Matters, which has just appeared in the current issue of the National Affairs Journal. Mexicans have never been enslaved in the United States, says Professor Scarry. He then goes on out to point out that African-Americans are different from Mexican-Americans, Cubans, Puerto Ricans, and other immigrants from Latin America that are grouped together in the US census as Hispanic Americans and others refer to as Latino, as a group that's undifferentiated. And it's true that politicians and many researchers keep lumping Black and Hispanic Americans together as almost identical. So to discuss these issues, I have Peter Scary with me today on the Education Exchange. Thank you, Peter, for joining me. Oh, it's a pleasure, Paul. Thanks for having me. Well, Peter, you make a number of provocative comments about the Black Lives Matter movement in your essay, and we'll get there. But I'd like to begin with your assessment of ethnic groups in the United States more generally. Uh, why do you draw such a sharp distinction between the Latino community and the African community, and then make all kinds of further distinctions beyond this? Aren't, aren't they both suffering from the predations of a white majority? Well, um, <clears throat> they're both uh, experiencing uh, uh, difficulties in, in achieving their, their goals and, and, and mobility in American society. Um, but I think for very different reasons. Uh, Latinos uh, on the one hand and African-Americans on, on the other um, have very different historical experiences. And we've gotten used to lumping them together and putting them into the same racial minority category um, as if they have had the same history and merit the same kinds of policy responses, which I think is wrong. Um, the primary and overwhelming distinction is clearly the history of, of, of slavery in the United States and the conditions under which uh, Blacks were brought here from Africa, and then of course Jim Crow and the legacy uh, of, of, of all that very onerous history. Um, Latinos, they're very varied among themselves, but clearly uh, they don't share in that history uh, and those kinds of uh, obstacles that uh, that have come from them uh, the way the way African Americans do. And I think that's a critical distinction that we have to make. And I think in an interesting way. Black Lives Matter is, is beginning to draw our attention in that direction, that African-Americans have uniquely compelling claims on, on American, on the American conscious, conscious and, and, and on our policymakers. 
So some would say that's not quite true because after all, we conquered Mexico. We took away half of their country or at least a third of it and uh, turned it into California and Colorado and Arizona, New Mexico and uh, elsewhere. So Texas, in fact. Uh, yeah. So we just stole their land from them and then we marched in and, and uh, oppressed them. Well, as many of my uh, Mexican-American or Chicano interlocutors used to tell me, um, you guys uh, stole it from us fair and square. Uh, but uh, putting that to one side, um, um, I would say that uh, uh, that history is there for sure. Uh, we, uh, we did conquer half of, uh, of Mexico's national territory in the U.S.-Mexican War. Um, but um, I think it's it's just it's indisputable virtually um, that the overwhelming majority of uh, Mexicans in the United States today, Mexican origin individuals, have come here uh, in the 20th century. Most of those uh, in the post World War II era, and when it was quite clear that they were crossing a, 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 the border of a sovereign nation and going from one, one nation, their own, to another. And I, I just think that is, the, that is the classic immigrant experience. And that's how, that's how Mexican-Americans see themselves uh, if, if, you, if you talk to them. And if you look at the evidence, I think they largely conform to a kind of classic immigrant pattern. So what makes you say they are a classic immigrant? I assume that the classic immigrant is Irish. Of course, uh, the Irish had the advantage of speaking English. And so uh, they really adapted very quickly. But even the Italians and the Eastern Europeans who uh, are less, had the more challenges, I think, uh, in uh, migrating uh, after they migrated to the United States. So why do you say that the Mexican-Americans and the people coming in from Central America are similar to the European immigrants? Some people would say, well, you know, the immigrants from Europe are, after all, white Americans. They're just exactly like the people who are here. So isn't that really very different? Well, um Yes and no. The first thing I would say is that um, when I've uh, uh, interviewed Mexican-American activists and political operatives, um, and when I was younger and began to do it and I wasn't very well known, I would have to explain myself and that I came from Boston, I came from an Irish Catholic political family, and I was really interested in whether Mexican-Americans were going to mobilize themselves politically. And the first response, the universal response I got was, hey, Pete, that's great. The, the Irish are just like the Mexicans. We're just like you. We're Catholic. Uh, we're struggling um, and so forth. Um, now, that's, you know, somewhat um, uh, a, a little bit of uh, friendly rhetoric to a visitor from the Northeast, but there's substantial substance to that. Um, um, Mexicans... Um, um, see themselves as immigrants. They, they, and and they, um, but at the same time, okay. I would say, not all immigrants have the exact same story. Uh, some came here under more onerous conditions than others, 
And it's true that Mexican-Americans have a somewhat unique history because the, their country is contiguous to ours in our history of the conquest of, of half of it, like I said before. Um, but um, those are specific conditions that don't deny the fact that Mexicans come here with many of the same aspirations, uh, the same goals, uh, and the same ambivalence, by the way, in the same way that lots of Italians came to the United States at the turn of the last century and then wound up going back home. Uh, more than a majority of Italian males who came to the United States in the era up to World War I wound up going back home. Um, and that movement back and forth across the border between us and Mexico also goes on. So immigration is a complicated story for each group, but I think broadly considered, um, Mexican-Americans uh, see themselves and uh, should be properly seen by others as a, as a pretty classic immigrant group. So what distinctions you draw between the Mexican-Americans, the Cubans, and the Puerto Ricans? I, I would say they're probably the three largest groups. I may be wrong there. Maybe Brazilians are uh, up there in the same thing. But tell me, first of all, how, how would you rank the order in terms of sheer numbers? Uh, in, Mexican-Americans have to be number one, but... Uh, yeah, in, in sheer numbers, um, Mexicans... Um, um, uh, Puerto Ricans and Cubans, I believe. Frankly, it's been a while since I've looked at those, those specific numbers, but roughly those three. I, I think um, Salvadoreños are, are pretty numerous at this point too. Um, so th those are the three or four major groups um, and they're very different among themselves, clearly. Um, uh, Cubans um, are not only tend to be, not uniformly, but on average, much more prosperous and politically organized, of course, um, but their story is more of a refugee story. Uh, they came here seeking, seeking, you know, sucker, escaping an oppressive regime. Um, many of them then plan and still plan to go back home. That's a different kind of story, and they, we we know the outcome. Most of them haven't and probably won't. Um, but that's that's the Cuban story. Puerto Ricans, I mean, that's that's a that's different unto itself. Puerto Ricans come here, um, not speaking English for the most part. The, Puerto Rico is largely a, a Spanish monolingual society, um, but they come here as American citizens, and that obviously sets up a very different dynamic for them. Doesn't necessarily mean they have it easy. And I'm not suggesting that any immigrants come here and don't struggle, um, but it's but they come but they come here clearly as American citizens, which gives them. There's no such thing as an illegal Puerto Rican immigrant. That's right, right, yeah. Now, but there is such a thing as an illegal Mexican American or, or or Central American immigrant, and maybe the very fact that they're illegal creates a condition that distinguishes them in such a way that they become more like Black Americans. Well, that's an interesting question. Um, um, it is true that there are large numbers of undocumented uh, uh, Mexican Americans and Central Americans in the United States. Um, um, but I, I would, 
I don't think I would stretch it to, to, to that analogy to, to subsume or liken it to, to that of a history of slavery. I, I, the first thing that comes to mind, Paul, when you say that to me, is that, for example, um, in the 1980s, when uh, we managed to pass the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986, which uh, afforded eventually something like 3 million uh, undocumented immigrants legal status who, who were, and, and then eligibility for citizenship. Well, um, the last time we collected any numbers on that, uh, which to my knowledge was about 10 years ago, uh, a good uh, 40 years after, uh, after the law was passed, uh, only something like 40% of those people who were eligible for legal status and then eligible to become citizens, only 40% actually went on to become citizens. So that suggests to me that citizenship, while it's important, and I would encourage immigrants to become citizens, for a lot of reasons, isn't as important um, to many of these individuals themselves um, as, uh, as being able to live here and not worry about being uh, hassled by, by law enforcement. And I don't begrudge them that at all, but that tells me right from the get-go, I think, that this is a different kind of status than slavery and, and servitude of the sort that African-Americans experienced. It's, it's, it, it's just very different. Well, I think actually you're agreeing with the Black Lives Matter movement, because I think in some sense, that's what they're saying, Black Lives Matter. You've lumped us in with all kinds of people who aren't black after all, they're really actually white and, you know, you know, it, it's really hard to say that the Latin American people are, uh, you know, so completely different. I mean, as you pointed out, they have the same religion. Uh, there, there may be slight differences in their the color of their skin, but there's was a huge migration from Europe into Latin America at the same time that there was into North America. So. Why is this such a different race? It's, it's, it's really not a different race. So maybe that's what Black Lives Matter is saying. And maybe there's a, a point there. Well, I definitely think there's a point there. And I think that's the thrust of my, my article. Um, but the way it's expressed, I think, is, is much more ambiguous and much more subtle than you just put it, or, or even the way I would put it. Because after all, We've um, we've gone through decades now of a of a racial minority paradigm in, in the wake of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act and the and the rights revolutions of uh, revolution of the 1960s, uh, uh, for which African Americans were the primary beneficiaries or intended beneficiaries, but that's gotten stretched to include Hispanics. Um, and that has certain advantages for Hispanic leaders, obviously, and has some advantages for Hispanics themselves, that's undeniable. And it has advantages for African-Americans who have allies when these uh, programs and policies come under attack. So um, on the one hand, I don't think they're gonna quite put it the way you put it or the way I put it, but I do think um, their, 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 their voice and the Black Lives Matter movement reflects the fact that in, in the last few decades, African-Americans 
have have dropped off the the, the political agenda. Um, after I mean, you know, the one way I put it uh, uh, to students is that you know in the 1990s, once we got through Bill Clinton's race discussion about affirmative action and the crime bill, um, African Americans kind of fell off the the public policy radar and what dominated. Uh, public policy, domestic policy for, for much of the next couple of decades was immigration, which, which boils down to Hispanics. Um, and what changed that, of course, was 9-11, uh, when suddenly we're all preoccupied with Muslims. And in that turmoil, uh, for, for a lot of reasons, but especially those two events, um, um, African-Americans kind of got overlooked. It's not as though anyone didn't know they were there, but their issues got pushed to one side. And I think what we're seeing now is a, is a, is a somewhat subtle, uh, at least in its, in, its for, in, its, in its impulse, if not always in its form or its expression, uh, a somewhat subtle uh, expression of African-Americans saying, hey, we're here too. And you kind of have neglected us, not kind of neglected us, you have neglected us. You've forgotten what you owe us. And I'm sympathetic to that, to that message. Um, uh, so, you know, that's, that's probably similar to the immigrant place in American society and history more generally. I mean, there has always been this uh, tension between the immigrants who come in poor but then they gradually integrate themselves into the society and, and the need for African-American labor, which was uh, evident during World War One and even during the uh, 1930s uh, with a naturalization act, uh, blacks get some opportunities uh, it, it, because you, we, we, we put the, we closed the door to immigration. And then when right. we open up the door to the immigration again, then whether or not it actually is happening or not, it seems to be happening that the, the Hispanic community, the Mexican American, the Cuban community, especially is, is, you know, they're less segregated, they're intermarrying, they're, uh, there seem to be making progress through our educational system. They're going into higher education. They're a bigger presence. They're, their numbers are growing. And so, so all of these things uh, seem to be at the expense of, or might be appear to be at the expense of the Black American community. Yes. Well, um, I'm inclined very much to agree with that. And um, um, there's, I think there's lots of, lots of evidence to support that. Your colleague, George Borjas, who has done uh, you know, the, 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 the primary work on, on, on the impacts of immigrants on, on our labor force, I think his work makes it very clear. There's a consistent, not huge, but a consistent um, impact uh, uh, of when low-skilled Hispanics come here and compete with similarly low-skilled non-high school graduate blacks or whites, but obviously African-Americans, I think are much more in direct competition. Um, the work of another one of your colleagues, William Julius Wilson, um, clearly shows that uh, a really impressive piece of research uh, comparing why employers in Chicago in the 1990s, and I don't think it's changed much since then, 
preferred Hispanic workers over African-American workers for all sorts of reasons. They, they come with networks. If you hire one, one Mexican guy, he'll, he'll connect you with his cousins and they'll all come together in cars and, and kind of reinforce one another and keep an eye on one another so, so to keep things on an even keel. Those dynamics don't work out as well in, in the African-American community at this point in time when things are much more atomized uh, social networks are much more much more strained, if non-existent. Um, there's lots of ways in which um, um, the African American story is negatively impacted by 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 Hispanics. Um, we can exaggerate it, and and one doesn't want to you know kind of obsess on it. But when we have huge numbers of immigrants coming here. Um, um, that are, you know, impacting America in all sorts of ways, uh, positive as well as negative. I, I think one of the one of the more salient ones that we really ought to look at more carefully is the impact on um, on uh, on African Americans. Well, you know, the welfare state as well might be a factor in all of this. Uh, I, it, this is never mentioned. But you know, many Mexican Americans. This is not true of the Puerto Ricans, uh, but uh, especially the people uh, from uh, South America and uh, and Central America. If they come in undocumented, if they cross the border without permission, uh, they can't get access to many of the resources that are available uh, from the welfare state. The only way they can survive is by hard work, by, by going into the fields and picking strawberries and by uh, serving as domestics in people's homes. And so they became known as sort of dependable workers. Uh, and that has made them uh, a more attractive business community, especially those that, that could employ people who didn't have to prove that they were US citizens um, the business community liked that. Rich people liked that. They, lo they loved having a gardener who, who they didn't have to uh, pay so much uh, 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 to uh, take care of their plants. So, uh, and so in some ways it, it made it easier to go in that direction if you're looking for low paid employment. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I, I might push back a bit um, on, on the notion that um, Hispanic or Mexican immigrants don't uh, don't wind up drawing on our on our welfare programs. I mean, I think there's 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 some some evidence of 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 of, of welfare take up of of, of that's fraudulent, uh, but it's but I wouldn't exaggerate that. Um, certainly, their children pose pose impacts on 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 our school systems, on our hospitals. Um, it's not. Uh, it's not as though they don't have any fiscal impact at all. They they do, and I think the evidence is pretty clear, especially at the state and local levels. But I think your point is is well taken. Um, that in many ways, um, um, Hispanic immigrants, Mexican immigrants in particular, um, prove to be um, uh, of great of great use and value to um, to employers. And and by the way, those rich people who um, who, who employ, employ gardeners, uh, I'll speak for myself, I won't compare incomes with you, Paul, but uh, that includes me. Uh, um, it, it's always, it often gets depicted as though the super rich are, are get benefiting from this, but the fact is 
middle and upper middle class Americans have gotten quite used to employing immigrants and don't always and very seldom ask for their for papers um, uh, for all sorts of reasons. So uh, lots of us find immigrants of, of great of great use and benefit. There's no doubt about it. Um, and I think some of some of that includes, um, if I if I may say, um, a certain a certain per perverse dynamic whereby um, there's an awkwardness about hiring black people. Uh, one one doesn't feel like unskilled black people ought to be in that position. Um, th th they deserve better. Um, um, and th th those those dynamics get very complicated. But when some immigrant person comes here. Uh, and presents themselves to work in, in, for, for, for one, um, well, one sort of, well, that's, he's an immigrant or she's an immigrant. And, you know, that, that's a story and a narrative that we can feel comfortable with because we, we know that many others before them have. When it comes to African-Americans, I think our, our sympathies and our empathy get all muddled and um, we opt for the easier, the easier road, which is often to hire an immigrant. So um, what's the way forward? Black Lives Matter uh, objects to the discrimination by the police. You might say that there's been discrimination in our educational system. There's certainly a plenty of segregation. Um, so what's, what's the way forward? Let's say the central problem that the United States faces today is the race problem then what's the way out? Okay, well, first of all, you know, we have to be careful with our language here because if the central problem is the race problem, um, under current discourse, that would include um, Asians and Hispanics. And I would be very insistent and very careful that the problem we face is the problem of African-Americans and, and, and their history and America's obligations to deal with that history, uh, which we've tried to do, but clearly have not been very successful at. Um, so I would, I would put it in terms of African-Americans and blacks, not simply race. Um, but having said that, um, I'm afraid, you know, uh, the, the, the way forward um, is not all that clear to me. I think just defining the problem in those terms that we, that we have special and overwhelming obligations to African-Americans is, is a hard enough nut to crack. Um, but if we, if we can do that, um, then we can, we can talk about um, um, uh, special programs I get for, for, for African-Americans, ways to reach out to African-American young people I mean, this gets very tricky and it's not easy um, because I myself have argued in, in the past against affirmative action. Um, but I do know that we have special obligations to, to African-Americans. And if we don't begin to even define the problem that way, I, I don't see how we can make any advance in, in, in that direction. Uh, simply defining the problem as one of race and then subsuming under that other groups who have very different claims on the American uh, polity uh, isn't going to help us. Um, and um, so I think we just have to, we have to focus very narrowly on the situation and challenges uh, facing African Americans. Well, certainly when you come to the police, you can, and, and there seems to be evidence, as you point out uh, in your essay, that the, the police do uh, 
uh, respond to black uh, people differently from other, others that are often defined as similar to them, such as the uh, Latino community. Clearly, I mean, the, 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 the numbers, the data there um, are, are dramatically different, dramatically. Uh, I cite uh, data from, from people like uh, Franklin Zimmering and others that show that the, whether we're talking about uh, homicide of blacks by, by, by police or simply interactions and, and stop and frisk kinds of activities are you know, orders of magnitude greater for African-Americans than they are for Hispanics using that broad category in this case. Um, and um, clearly given what we've seen in the last year and what's in the trial that's going on now in Minneapolis, um, we, 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 have, we have to address this. Uh, how, I, I'm, I, I'm, I don't have any, any specific answers to that. It's a very complicated dynamic, obviously, but I think we have, to, we have to define it as one that is particularly one between law enforcement and African-Americans and not get muddled by putting in all these other presumed racial groups into the mix where clearly in this one example, the evidence is overwhelming that it's a problem between blacks and police. Well, one of the ideas out there is reparations. So if, there, if it is the case that we have a special obligation to those who were slaves, then isn't the solution reparations? You can identify quite specifically who's the son or daughter of a slave. Um, and you can say they are entitled. Um, well, uh, the logic of my argument compels me to consider that rather seriously, I acknowledge. Um, um, I, 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 I hesitate for sure. Um, I, I don't see um, um, I, I don't see that being implemented very easily. Uh, you, you, you say it's, 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 it's relatively easy. It, it may be, but having to trace all that history and, and, and be clear about where, where do we draw the line? Is it, is it if you're, you know, three, three fourths African-American and only a quarter white or, or, or some such as that, where, where do we draw that line? Uh, what do we do with affluent blacks? Does Susan Rice deserve uh, uh, some sort of recompense for her family's uh, history of having been enslaved? Uh, I'd be inclined to say no. Uh, I'm sure I get lots of disagreement right away from lots of people. I don't know if I would from Susan Rice. Um, but um, I think that's, 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 that's a deep dive into our past that I, I, I believe would be more divisive than helpful. But I, I, I do admit that that's, that, that's what, where, where the logic of my argument begins to go. And I, I think we have to at least talk about that. But there are others who say that actually, if you look at what was happening to the black community in the 1940s and the 1950s, that they were making steady progress. They were becoming increasingly integrated into American society. Their employment prospects were improving. Uh, the kids were making their way through schools. They were graduating at higher rates from high schools. They were showing signs of genuine progress. Uh, 
during a period before the civil rights movement. And it was precisely when we began to implement affirmative action programs and extend the welfare state that the contemporary race problem developed, that this is not buried in the past. This is not a legacy of history. It's a creation of the welfare state and the affirmative action programs that have been put into place. So how do you think about that? Well, that's an interesting point. Um, I, don't, I don't deny that, that those efforts and programs um, have had an impact. Uh, and certainly the problem of, um, uh, of uh, fatherless homes and what used to be called unwed motherhood um, uh, is, 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 is worse than ever among African-Americans. It's certainly gotten bad among Hispanics and, and whites too, certainly uh, low-income working-class whites. I, 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 hear, I hear your argument. Uh, I think what it speaks to is that we have to, we have to think about social policy uh, in ways um, that, that, that address these kinds of issues. And one of the things that I'm, I'm concerned about um, with regard to Black Lives Matter is the, is the kind, of, kind of cultural orientation, the kind of cultural uh, radicalism of, of Black Lives Matter, um, which is you know, very hostile to the Black church, uh, very hostile to, 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 to the male leadership of the Black church. And I'm not cape, you know, prepared to sit here and say there aren't problems in the Black church or there aren't problems with Black male ministers um, abusing their authority in some cases. But Black Lives Matter um, has this, this, you know, it, this kind of cultural orientation, this uh, kind of culturalist Marxism, which is, I think, more cultural than Marxist, um, that is, is, you know, embraces the cultural changes in American society that I would argue have have contributed to to to, to problems not just among African Americans but uh, among wide sectors of American society, and and um, I I think uh, intelligent policies that speak to the genuine needs uh, in terms of uh, uh, family life. Uh, maintaining and, and, and pulling together uh, uh, functioning and integral families and, and so that kids get, you know, get, get, the, get the wherewithal at home so that they can begin to hope to do well in school. Um, I, I think we, we need to think about those things, but I have, I have no doubt that those are, that's a tall order, but I think part of our problem is definitely cultural. I think, you know, Orlando Patterson, and, and, and to some extent, uh, Bill Wilson's uh, analyses are, are definitely on target here, that it's not, it's not simply social policy, it's also cultural. Well, these are important issues and thank you for uh, sharing these uh, thoughtful ideas and really breaking apart some of the uh, simplicities and definitions that uh, we have, we have too often relied upon simplifications, I must say, when talking about something that is uh, truly complex. So thanks for joining me on the Education Exchange, Peter. Well, thanks for having me, Paul. I really enjoyed uh, your, your, your challenging questions. Well, I'm pleased to have had with me today on the Education Exchange, Peter Scarry, Professor of Political Science at Boston College.
His recent essay entitled Why Black Lives Matter Matters has just appeared in the current issue of National Affairs. I urge you to read it. You'll find it uh, very illuminating. Thank you, Peter, for joining me. Thanks again, Paul. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time. Thank you for joining me.